0: Welcome to the Uncomfortable Truth Podcast, hosted by the rock star of consulting, Alan Weiss. Be prepared to have your beliefs challenged and your behaviors questioned.
1: Welcome back to the Uncomfortable Truth. I'm very happy to have Suzanne Bates with me today. Uh, Suzanne, I go back a ways. I don't even want to think about how long. I know it's over a decade, so I'm not thinking beyond that. We were both teenagers at the time. Uh, Suzanne's one of these rare people, really, who have gone through the cycle. In other words, she started her own company, coming out of the media business, a news anchor. Uh, She grew her own company, uh, and then sold the company. And not many people get to you know round third base and get home that way. So I want to ask a little little bit about that because a lot of you are boutique firm owners. Uh, A little bit about Suzanne here. Uh, She took this company through the, the growth stage, the the rocks, and the and the downhill and the uphill, and all this this stuff successfully sold it uh, to a um, multi-million dollar, $200 million publicly traded professional firm, BTS, which is in where, in um, Sweden, I wanna say?
0: Yeah, based in Sweden.
1: Yep. Um, And their clients include AT&T and Chevron and Coke and so forth and so on. Um, She she wrote, Speak Like a CEO, Secrets for Commanding Attention and Getting Results by McGraw-Hill and another four or five books from McGraw-Hill and they're in, you know, six or eight languages. Uh, Susan has earned the pinnacle, Suzanne, I'm sorry, has earned the pinnacle award from the Boston Chamber of Commerce, I'm laughing because you'll see why, the Exceptional Woman Entrepreneurial Award, and the Alan Weiss Award for Excellence, among others. So I appreciate that (laughs) in in your resume. That was the
0: hardest one
1: to win. So I I will also mention that Suzanne has just a fabulous sense of humor, which I think she would agree helps all of us get through life. Suzanne, thank you. Welcome.
0: Hi, Alan. Thank you for having me. Hi, everybody.
1: Uh, so listen, when you left broadcasting and you were an anchor in Boston and Philly and other places, but when you left broadcasting, what took you into sort of the education and training business? Why did you do that?
0: I was really trading on what I knew at the time, which was how to communicate, how to make a presentation, how to work with the media. And I was in Boston, of course. So I started there. I started close to home calling on companies and people I knew to ask them if they needed media training. And then I heard about this thing called coaching (laughs) because coaching was relatively new at the time. And I thought, well, why don't I coach people in communication skills? So that was really the genesis of the business. And uh, I was very fortunate because I did have a, a little bit of a network, although I had no background in business. And I tell people all the time I had no business starting business
1: no business starting a business now you know i coach people globally of course and what i'm hearing even today more and more and particularly from women is that um, i can really help people and i'm eager to help people but i feel guilty promoting myself Uh, i have an esteem issue i've been told i shouldn't be self-promotional uh did you have any issues with that or did you just charge right ahead
0: Well, that's a good question. I don't think I was reticent to use what I had. And I did have a name in the Boston area anyway, because I knew that would give me an edge in business. And I had some credibility, I guess you might say, because of my work on television and in journalism. Uh, But I will say I learned a lot more from you about that. And that was not just to blow your own horn, but to be your own brand because that's really the strongest brand you can have. And once I understood that, um, I really was, honestly, I was modeling a lot of the things that you were doing. I mean, at a, you know, not the level you were doing it, but I thought, well, why don't I write a book? Why don't I give speeches? Why don't I join NSA? You know, why don't I? And when I came to Million Dollar Consulting and that was our first uh, get together. And I think it's probably more like two decades ago. I was just blown away by how you formulated, stoop to nuts how to build a consulting practice. And honestly, that was the kickstart that I needed. And when you know, when you ask about uh, you know, tooting your own horn or uh, or you know, being your own brand, I don't see any other way to do it. It's it's impossible to set yourself apart unless people understand who you are and what you're all about, and uh, what you know, and how you can help them. It's really about how you can help them.
1: Yeah, that's really well said. Now, I picture you sort of walking up the pavement, (laughs) banging on doors and saying, you know, I'll work for food and so forth. How long was it before you had a group, before you had a company and employees? How long did that take?
0: Well, I had an assistant who was in college when I first started just because I needed somebody to help me. I was organized, but I needed somebody to help me with things like marketing and responding to emails and things like that. So that was helpful. Uh, I I brought on a couple more part time contractors to work with me on marketing, really, and PR and that sort of thing. Um, I remember you saying to me and to several of us who were attending a meeting with you that um, if we were going to build a business with employees we better plan to sell it and if we weren't (laughs) then we better stay solo and i took that seriously
1: (laughs) obviously did yeah
0: (laughs) (laughs) well i did i thought i don't know how i'm going to sell it but i didn't want to do it by myself Uh, unlike a lot of people who go into consulting after working in Industry or in management consulting, I had never really had a large team to manage, so I didn't have the uh, PTSD—is that what you call it—from uh, managing people. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that a lot of people have when they come out of business. So I was kind of excited to have a team and and transfer knowledge and 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 work with them. And then the second decision I made was not to have contractors. We did have some contractors, but we really decided, I decided to have employees because they were more connected to our company and more loyal to what we were doing and more invested in what we were doing. And and that actually proved out because many of the people who started with us are still with us now.
1: Uh, You are the author of the very brief story that when you got off an airplane and came home, all you saw were all these chicks with their beaks in the air waiting to be fed so, <laughs> which, which you can't even talk about today without laughing so how big was the firm at its largest and what did it average and and how did you deal with this feeling that you were the only one out there really bringing in business at one time
0: yeah i think we had about 10 employees when i told that story of the baby chicks in the nest <laughs> looking for their uh you know their seed for mama to bring home the the worm and um that was a lot of people to feed and uh what i think uh i mean that was a, a moment of levity for sure with everybody but it was also a moment of pain for me and i'm very thankful to be able to you know share that because i realized how ridiculous it was first of all right and and then it occurred to me that if you can transfer knowledge on what you do with your clients, you can also transfer knowledge in how to sell and how to solve people's problems. And you had taught me that. (laughs) So, you know, and I learned from, you know, a few other consultant friends of mine. I mean, really, it's just absorbing and learning from other people. So that's what I did. I codified it. I created a sales playbook. I, you know, created a commission system and, I didn't do anything that lots of other companies don't do, but uh, I did it for survival. I couldn't possibly grow and continue to feed all the birds.
1: Mm -hmm. So, we have right now X number of boutique firm owners listening to this recording. And uh, when you decided finally uh, it was appropriate to sell the business, you wanted to sell the business, you were ready emotionally and everything else. Was that path difficult or easy or unexpected? Or just tell me a little bit about what you went through to do that.
0: I started about five years before we finally sold it, getting it ready for sale, which meant that uh, we identified a bank and an investment bank. We got a part-time CFO and we changed our accounting system to the Gap accounting system so that when we got in front of a buyer, we'd be financially ready You know for those conversations because it's a very rigorous process Um, we had some ups and downs for sure Uh, one of them was uh, we had a partner who ended up leaving and COVID happened so right in the middle of the sale uh, COVID struck we were about to seal the deal and we had to wait another year and prove uh, that we could uh, remain viable during you know, a crisis like that. The good news was that we did better than they did. <laughs> <during> <laughs> so I was you know, really pleased when we finally closed the sale. But it was a long, hard process and and but an interesting one, too. I would say if you're thinking about selling your business, there's a lot of ways to sell it. You don't have to do it the way I did if you you know we had twenty five or thirty employees at the time, and we had a lot of contractors too. But there are other ways to get value from your business later you can do an esop you can sell to a partner you can sell to a contractor you know you can sell to a pe firms. so you know there's lots of ways to do it if that's something you're interested in doing
1: well you're one of the few who have been successful at this stage uh, of your career to do this i think so well and, and uh, with the pandemic hitting you as well as everything else now you're still uh engaged with the firm that uh, purchased your firm correct all right so yes. I, there's another woman in my community who also was successful selling her firm uh, after several years and she sold it to a larger competitor. And she, just yesterday, she told me this story and she said, uh, I'm the only woman in top management. Uh, and uh, she says, they don't know what to do with me. Uh, <laughs> and, she says, and this is an American firm of water, it's not a foreign firm, it's an American firm. And she says, they don't know what to do with me. And she says, just the other day, the president asked if I could uh visit and spend a few extra days because I have a special meeting and she said I'd be happy to do that and he said you're such a good girl and she said
0: <laughs>
1: she said what do I do with this so what's your experience now that you're somebody's employee you know and not just running your own business I know you have a lot of Independence but uh is, is that a difficult transition to make
0: Oh, yes. I think it's difficult for any entrepreneur because you have, if you have people, you have to integrate them into the company. So the first year and a half to two years was a real challenge. I mean, I learned a lot about myself. I think our team learned a lot about themselves, but uh, integrating yourself and also making your, uh, you know, it's called an earnout, but ma- hitting your numbers, hitting your uh, revenue and profit numbers is a real challenge because both sides go in. It's just like a marriage. You don't know each other really. <laughs> and so they don't know what they're buying and you don't know who's buying you until you get in the door and you know start to look around and, and see how things really work and there's politics in big companies like you know the, the experience that she's had and there are dynamics in big companies that are different from the culture that you've created in your company and that's where a lot of the conflicts, are, uh, are rooted. So uh, so the first two or three years you usually have an earnout period. you're not going to be free when you sell your business. Uh, they want you there especially because you're the one who built it. So I'm through that period now and it's a relief. And we're, you know, looking at other ways to integrate our team with the rest of the organization. But I would say the culture shock is great for anybody, even in our company. And we have a lot of female leaders. We have a female CEO. We have a female head of North America. But there's still cultural differences between our company and theirs. It's not good or bad. It just is.
1: How long before uh, you're in a position to simply be out on your own and no ties?
0: Well, we were able to finish our earnout period early, so I'm actually free to go now. And that's something that you negotiate when you negotiate the sale of your business. And I would recommend that you uh, look at ways to untether yourself as soon as possible. It's always possible to stay, but you don't want to be obligated to stay any longer than you have to because it is a long, hard road. And if you're used to being independent, and I was 20 years of you know running my own company, um, it's it's just, it's not easy. It's, yeah, it's yeah. fun because you have some colleagues, right? And that's nice and it's a global company. So I get to travel a lot. I've been to all kinds of places, but you know, when it comes right down to it, you're used to running your own show and that never
1: changes. How's your golf game these days?
0: Uh, just as bad <laughs> as I'm not getting to play often enough.
1: Oh, I thought you'd be out there a couple of times a week. <laughs>
0: yeah well pretty soon i i'm hoping that i'm gonna make the transition i'm living on a golf course in naples florida and another golf course on cape cod so oh, i go. have no excuse not to have a better golf game than i have
1: <laughs> i think i think you know this warning but they're thinking of redoing those bridges up there and if so it's going to be impossible you, you better stay in naples
0: yeah no kidding well yeah. at least I won't have to go back and forth to boston that's right, right. yeah yeah
1: so let me switch gears here, and I'd, I'd like to get your opinion on some things going on in society. And, and one of them is this: um, remote learning, remote participation, remote meetings have their ups and downs. Obviously, you know. Then there's there's logical arguments on both sides. People need the the um, social uh, ability to interact. Uh, people need the convenience of working at home. My personal feeling is that if people are in the office, traditionally, 40 hours a week, you're getting maybe 20 hours of productivity. So stop screaming about people working at home. I mean, 20 hours is good these days. But what you're feeling about remote learning and remote meetings, uh, gonna grow, gonna decline, stable? What do you think?
0: I don't think it's going to decline because people are really happy with the convenience of remote work. And no matter how hard employers try, they're not bringing people back to the office and the ways they're doing it are not necessarily productive, like having parties or you know dinners or whatever it is. I mean, it's people don't want to stay at night anyway, so they don't even want to be there during the day. Um, but then again, you know, we've, I mean, it's been said many times, but the young, I feel really bad for the young people who aren't making the connections and not uh, building the social fabric that we had an opportunity to build and the relationships and the colleagues and all of that. It's really tough for them. And I think that I have a daughter who's in her 30s and she says there's a lot of people in her age group who are suffering from depression and anxiety, and I really think it's a result of COVID and not being able to be in, even now in a more social environment. So I think it's hard on people and it's really hard on teams. You know, we some of the work that we do is with leadership teams. And when you see them get together, when, you, when, you, when we, they have a chance to break bread together and then really work issues through, not in a virtual environment, but together in the same room, it's completely different. And I know for myself, when I've gone to Barcelona or Buenos Aires for a conference uh, with my own colleagues at BTS, it changes the relationship completely in a better way. So even if there's been misunderstanding, you're able to overcome that and build trust. So I don't know what's going to happen, but I think we need to find a balance.
1: People ask me all the time, what are leaders, quote unquote leaders, Uh, most concerned about these days and i think one of the top three is always how do i deal with teams that are sometimes present together sometimes not present at all and sometimes hybrid what demands should i make on their presence or not make demands and how do i get them organized and so forth I, i think it's a real issue that nobody's really dealt with all that successfully yet
0: yeah well you know the the ultimate measure of how a team performs is what they get done right and every team is different so there are many teams that know each other well and can get a lot done without a lot of interaction. But when you have a new team or new members of a team uh, and you haven't built that cohesiveness, the trust, the authenticity, the in, you know integrity of how you work together, it's very, very difficult because there's a lot of compromise that has to happen on a team and everybody has to be an enterprise thinker. And if you get selfish behavior or behavior that's misunderstood, it's not going to happen. And you're not going to, achieve what you need to achieve. So I think that team leaders really need to uh, need to uh, be aware of the output first, right? What's really getting done versus the, you know, getting involved in the political stuff. But they, you know, you do need to bring people together when they don't know each other. There's no question about it.
1: We have to today uh, chat GPT. Uh, And, you know, I would, you know, me, I'm always trying to poke people a little bit. So I put the first couple of paragraphs of um, Steinbeck's The Grapes of Wrath in there, and it didn't come out as effectively, and then I put the first couple of paragraphs of my book The Consulting Bible in there, and it didn't come out as effectively. But uh, it seems to me to have great utility in terms of instructions and legal boilerplate and directions and things like this. Uh, We also have the capability today, of, of, unfortunately, of using people's voices and uh, putting them in places where they really didn't say what is being said, and also altering images uh what's your feeling about this i mean i don't think ai is going to take over the world and i don't think we should fear it but on the other hand it does present some challenges doesn't it
0: it's gotten out ahead of how we've been thinking about it frankly i think most people were very surprised when it was released and it was as advanced as it is and when we started hearing from people like elon musk about what's you know possible and you know some of the other folks who've been interviewed recently uh you know, it's it it does have not a maybe a sentient mind, but it has a, a way of evolving that is pretty frightening. And I don't know that we have the uh, social awareness or the political will uh, to regulate it. Um, it's it's I, I'm I guess I'm not afraid of anything, but I think it will change the world very quickly. You know, there are futurists who've always said that, who said, and I don't know. In the last 10 years that there's going to be a time maybe 100 years from now when when there's no death because (laughs) we'll be able to replace every body part right so what happens when there's no death what happens when machines can do almost everything that we do better than we can i don't know (laughs) but i don't think we've ever faced anything as world changing as this not even the industrial age
1: there's an old story about a factory Uh, And every uh, every morning, um, just two entities enter: a man and a dog. And they leave at five o'clock. And someone finally says, "What's that all about?" And they said, "Well, um, the dog is there to make sure the man doesn't touch anything." And they said, "Well, what does the man do?" And they said, "He feeds the dog." (laughs) Uh, And so I always thought that was totally (laughs) facetious. But you know, we're getting there, right? We're Uh, getting there. And I always look at arguments, and I try to prove or disprove them and if you take what you just said about changing the world at first you say well everybody says change the world but the internet changed the world didn't it it did Uh, and nobody predicted the internet really no and and, uh so uh now i think if you combine that with things like 3d printing uh you really have the mechanisms in place to say well you know get ready because this isn't your, your you know is this isn't your father's world now it's a very different kind of world um and uh You know, as as I age and the horizon gets somewhat closer, uh, I don't know. I don't even want to think about body parts of living forever. I just want to live live well today, (laughs) because I see some things coming. I really don't want to have to deal with.
0: Yeah, well, Uh, I'm not sure that our uh, replacement parts would enjoy uh, cigars and and martinis. You know, it's true though that I think we do adapt and that is a reason to be more optimistic. I mean, I think about when when the internet uh, appeared, right? I was still in television and I remember my boss, the news director asked me to go to a meeting at the Boston Globe where we were gonna talk about the internet. So there's a big table with 12 people around it and we're all talking about how we're gonna incorporate the internet into news media. And I raised my hand and I said, um could somebody tell me what is the internet <laughs> 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 right and that was uh the late 90s right the mid to late 90s so think about what's happened since then and how we've adapted and made it a, a something mostly for good right are there bad things that come out of the internet or out of social media tiktok yes of course but it's mostly been a force for good so you know if you think that way and and you and you realize how quickly we adapt to a new world, I think it has a lot of possibilities too.
1: Well, like anything else, it depends how you use it. You know, I mean, the guy in my, who owns my, the coffee shop I go to kept uh, telling me that, uh, you know, he, he bought a coin in crypto for $8,000 and a week later it was $22,000. And after that, well, today he's lucky he and got get a cup of coffee for this coin he bought in crypto. Yeah. So you know, stuff happens. But just to give an example, you know, um, I probably have the strongest independent consulting brand in the world and I'm banished from LinkedIn. A week ago they told me they didn't believe I was who I am and they wanted proofs. So I gave them a passport photo and then they told me that I was banned for violating their codes of conduct and they wouldn't <laughs> tell me what codes of conduct or how that came about. So now I'm in this strange, almost esoteric, ephemeral debate with them trying to prove I am who I am. Uh, and I thought I it's now kind of funny, I'm reporting on it every day, but I think that if you take a look at the social media platforms, I can make a case that they're really public utilities, and maybe it's time to regulate them like we do gas and electric and water, because otherwise we have private interests censoring, we have private interest determining who's banned and who's not banned. I mean, don't, don't you think, especially with your media background, that there's, there's a problem with that?
0: I do. I think it's inevitable. We have to have more regulation. Although I, again, I don't know if there's the political will, because just like the banks became very powerful because they had the money, right? So they, uh, they could control politics. It's very difficult now to impose regulation, but, you know, it's going to end up being like the banks, right? We swing from one to the other. In the 1920s, there was almost no regulation. And then after the crash happened, there was much more regulation. And I think that is probably going to happen in the world of social media. Uh, but i do think that we need more political will than we've had to to regulate it and, because that's ridiculous i mean the self-policing doesn't work that your case is an obvious a funny but obvious example of how they are unable to regulate themselves
1: i have two more questions i going to let you go my first question is uh having really successfully shown what an entrepreneur can do building a company and, and i'm serious that the cycle you went through is a rare one successfully uh, what one piece of advice would you give people who are seeking to build a, a boutique business and, and someday sell it uh, and um, uh, and say, I've done well for others and I've done well for myself? What What piece of advice would you give them?
0: Well, I think it's important to love what you do, whether you're going to build a business and sell it or whether you're going to build a business and have it end with you whenever you're ready to retire, because it's a long, hard road no matter what. And along the way, you have to enjoy it. It can't just be for the purpose of selling it. Selling it is a nice outcome of a time of work when you feel like you've uh, hopefully made a contribution. And the contribution that I hope that I've made, that we've made is to make leaders better so we make organizations better. And that felt like a mission and a purpose that other people could uh, grab onto and um, that it excited them as well. So if you are gonna bring people into the organization, knowing your mission and finding people who appreciate that and are, want to be part of that is really important
1: yeah i've always felt that's a strong part of your success you've had a calling you know and and uh and you followed that calling my uh final question is this uh if people want to learn more about your new company uh about your books about learning from you uh what's the best way to reach you what's the access
0: well i'd say look Look me up on LinkedIn, but I'm a little afraid to suggest <laughs> that right now, <laughs> i to <gonna> get banned.
1: <laughs> well, don't say it was for me, for one thing.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, LinkedIn and, and BTS, it's uh bts.com, I think. I'm not sure, because there's also a, a rock group called BTS and sometimes they are uh, confused it's a it's a brand problem that bts never expected to have they were uh formed 35 years ago by henrik eklund uh who's the uh, our our swedish founder and um when he founded the company business training systems there was no bts rock group so stuff happens
1: i know the feeling if you go on google i have like 24 of the top 25 positions but in position 16 is a plastic surgeon named alan weiss and I have taken on some some patience. It's very lucrative. <laughs> <laughs> a little tweak here, a little tweak there, you know. Suzanne, listen, so, I thank you so much for being with us today. Uh, I, I miss our, our more frequent chats, but I really treasure this one as well. I wish you continued success and um, you fed the chicks well, right?
0: Thank you, Alan, yes. And thanks to you, I was able to feed the chicks.
1: Take care of yourself, okay?
0: Thank you you've been listening to the uncomfortable truth with alan weiss for free access to alan's newsletters audio and video resources and for information about his global events and coaching communities please visit alanweiss.com thanks for listening keep the faith